when you visit Yad Vashem, that's the memorial to Holocaust victims in Jerusalem. When you visit Yad Vashem, you're overwhelmed by the horror, the historical accounts of what took place in the previous century. It's a memorial that also captures then something of the dignity of humanity. The dignity not merely of the, the victims, but of, but of some of those that, that worked to save people from the Holocaust. And so there's a memorial there as you walk through Yad Vashem, a, a tree-lined uh, garden, which is a garden to the righteous among the nations. What, what the nation of Israel has done is borrowed a, borrowed a phrase from rabbinic literature talking about righteous Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish but have yet done something heroic. And so this garden is dedicated to the thousands of men and women who, at great risk to themselves, saved others. Now, when I visited Yad Vashem as a college student, it was back in the 90s, and so there was one name, among others, that we stopped to see because his name was immortalized in a best picture, Oscar Schindler, in Schindler's List. One among the, the thousands who is recognized as a righteous Gentile. Someone who is not Jewish but honored formally by the Jewish people. Now, when we come to Luke 7, we are introduced to another who the rabbis would describe using the same language. A righteous Gentile, a centurion. Because look at the way his, his need is introduced to Jesus. When the Jewish leaders come to Jesus, look at verse 4. They say, this man deserves to have you do this. They are saying he is righteous, he is worthy, he deserves a miracle. Because the problem isn't hard to to understand. We're told in verse 2 that the centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, is sick. He's about to die. Now, you might want to read that language of valued highly as as a financial transaction. If my servant is sick, he's not getting work done. I value his work very highly. But, 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 I, but I think there's something much more personal taking place. Because later on in the passage in verse, in, in verse uh, 7, Jesus talks, we, we, we hear that this centurion calls his servant. It's translated in English, rightly, my servant, but it's a much more personal language. It's the same way you would talk about my son, my child my servant. And so, so it's not merely that this centurion is worried about the financial loss he will face. It's a personal loss, that this servant is on his deathbed. And so first we find a man whom the people think is a deserving man, because the group that, is, that comes to Jesus comes because, look at verse 3, the centurion had heard about Jesus. It indicates he's never met Jesus. He doesn't appear to have heard Jesus teach. He hasn't actually witnessed a miracle. He's merely heard about him. And so there are elders of the Jews. These are men of great standing in their community, men probably of significant social status and, and wealth, and they, they come to Jesus with the request. They're here for a miracle because Jesus is a miracle worker. And so they say in verse 4, this man deserves to have you do this. Why, verse 5? Because he loves our nation. He has built our synagogue. 
See, these prominent social leaders say, here is a man worthy of the blessing of God. Here's a man worthy of a miracle. Consider what he has done for us. He loves this nation. He has built a synagogue here in Capernaum for us to worship in. But, but there's still a problem, right? Is the man Jewish? No. Is the man from this region? No. How do, how do we know that? Well, look back at verse 2. What is his vocation? He is a centurion. He is an officer in the imperial army of Rome occupying the land of the Jews. The Jews have no king. They are forced to bow the knee before Caesar, to pay tribute and taxes. And so Rome, in order to make sure that they keep control over every part of their vast empire, leaves, leaves legions of soldiers throughout the empire. So that as soon as violence pops up, as soon as rebellion begins to, to foment, there is a centurion with soldiers here ready to quash any rebellion. This is a centurion, an occupying, a man in the occupying army. But see, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's forcing his disciples to see how the love of God goes even to the enemies of God's people. Now, verse 1, it said, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, but we didn't actually stop and say, well, what was he saying? In my Bible, I'd actually, I have to physically turn the page to get back to chapter 6. Maybe you just need to, to glance across the page. But chapter 6 is the, the beautiful sermon of Jesus. We're Matthew, or Luke describes it for us that it's his sermon on the plain, on, on flat ground. We, we know that Jesus preached a similar sermon because Matthew tells us he preached it on a hillside. And so there are repeated themes, but this is, this is one of Jesus's grand sermons. And in chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus describes what true gospel love looks like. Look at chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And now Jesus and, and, and this sermon ends, it's the most brilliant sermon conclusion ever. It's, the sermon ends with the, the house built on the, the, the poor foundation of sand, and, and Jesus just knocks the house down and walks away. I mean, mic drop, Jesus is offstage, sermon ends. But, but, but immediately then, he's going to force his disciples to begin to apply the truth that they've just heard. What's it mean to love your enemies? It means that even a centurion has the right, has access to Jesus. And so we read in verse 6 that Jesus goes with them. Now what about you? Would you help this man? I mean, it, those, uh, if, you're, if you're morally minded, then you might think, well, yes, of course, he's a good man. We're, we're, we're told that by them. He deserves to have Jesus do this. He deserves the help. And it, isn't it true we might be tempted to think that that statement that you know, God helps those who help themselves. We might be tempted to think that's true. And so, so this is a guy who has got his life together. He's, he's, he's a good man. He deserves help. Or maybe perhaps you are more politically minded. And so you think, well, here's clearly a man of, in a powerful position. Not only does he have the ear of the, the Jews that, that are leading the city, but he literally has a sword and an army behind him. He's a man in high places, and you know what? It's always good to have friends with a little bit of 
power, you never need to know, you never know when you're going to need to call in a favor. And so, yes, he's powerful. Let's help him. Or maybe you're more financially oriented, and then you think, well, there's clearly a way this will pay off well for me in the end. Here, here's a man of, of, of significant means, so much so that he could build a synagogue here in Capernaum. Well, you know what? My hometown, you know, our synagogue could use a little bit of sprucing up. So it's always good to have friends with some money that they can send your way. See, we often measure a man's worth the way the people here in Luke 7 measure a man. We measure people by what they have to offer us. Now, negatively, that means we, we, we think that, that in this case, well, based on his vocation, he's a member of the evil army that's here, or based on his homeland, he's not from around here. We might want to cast him off and dismiss him. Or more positively, we, we would measure him by his power, his wealth, his significance. Maybe that's how we still measure people today, by what they might have to offer me. Or maybe more, more poignantly, how do you measure yourself? What's the standard by which you would, you would be able to come to Jesus? Would you come to Jesus saying, well, I deserve this? But you see the, the danger in that. Negatively, if you come and you recognize and you look back at the, the story of your life and you see, I have done all of this wrong. If you measure yourself by the worst in your life, then, then when you say, well, if I have to come based on my worth, then I guess I shouldn't come. Or maybe more dangerous is those of us that would say, well, let's measure myself by the, the trophies, the certificates, the diplomas that I have gained. Let's measure myself by the success I have achieved in this life. And so, of course, if we're coming based on worth, well, I'm not at the front of the line. I mean, I don't want to be arrogant here, but I deserve to be in line to get to Jesus. See, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and say, this man deserves to be here. But as Jesus goes, he's, he's met again a second time. Again, interestingly, not by the centurion himself. Here in Luke's gospel, we, even though he's the, the, like, the main character in this story, we never actually get to meet him. He never actually stands before Jesus because he, he didn't consider himself worthy. The Jewish leaders, they're the ones that considered him worthy. But even as they're bringing Jesus to his home, he, we, we read in verse 6, that Jesus is not far from the house of the centurion when he sends a second contingent of people to intervene with Jesus. But they bring the words of the centurion himself. Look at verse 6. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's ex exactly the opposite of what we just heard from the Jewish people. They come and say, this man deserves to have you come. He is worthy. But when we hear the words of the centurion himself, he says, I am not worthy. Here in verse 6, he, he, he perhaps has concern for the, the religious customs of the day that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, if he comes into the house of the centurion, he will be made ritually unclean. And so Jews don't enter into the, the houses of Gentiles. But he presses it even further, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. 
It's not merely worried about Jesus's, Jesus's ritual obligations. Look at verse 7. It says, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. This is a man who does not see his worth when standing before Jesus. He's not even there. He sends his friends to repeat the message. See, here we have not a worthy man, but a humble man. But he sees the power of Jesus. He is a man who is humbled before Jesus, but also has faith in Jesus. Because look at the analogy that he gives, a picture of what faith looks like. He describes himself as a man under authority. He says, Jesus, you don't even need to be here. I don't expect any sort of magical incantation or, or hocus pocus. I don't expect you to have to, to rub an ointment onto my servant. Merely say the word. Jesus, you have such great authority that at a distance you can just speak it and it will happen. And he says, and I know what authority looks like. I am a man under authority. There are officers above me that when they say march, I march. When they say enter that fray, I jump into the battle. He says, I know what it is to tell a man, go, and he goes. He doesn't talk back to me and give me reasons why he shouldn't go. He doesn't take it, well, you know, that's kind of your personal opinion, but I think I'd rather do it my way. No, I say go, and the man goes. I say come, and he comes. Because a centurion has power of life and death over those he commands. If you don't obey, let's have a court-martial right here. I condemn you, you're sentenced to death, you're done. And he says, if I have that kind of authority, I know your authority, Jesus, is even greater. Because I can send a servant, I can send a soldier, but you can transform a life. You have power over sickness. You have power over death. See, while the Jews declared this man worthy, he considers himself unworthy. It's a picture of humility mixed with deep faith. See, he doesn't come saying, I deserve God's blessing. I deserve God's grace. He says, I am unworthy. And you see, as soon as you say, I deserve God's grace, then you've completely destroyed grace. Because grace, by definition, is something that is undeserved, unmerited. So if you say, I deserve it, and you get it back, it's no longer grace. It's merely what was owed to you. It's, it's a wage. It's a, it's a responsibility. It's an obligation that has to be given back to you. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. And so you cannot go to Jesus and say, I deserve this. You have to go to Jesus and say, I am not worthy. Now, we're not really troubled in this passage by the transformation that takes place in one Gentile's life, one centurion coming to faith in Jesus. That, that doesn't bother us. But I think what, what might bother us a little bit is when we say to every centurion, you have to come to faith in Jesus. When we say to every person in the world, you have to come to faith in Jesus. Because when, when the centurion speaks about the authority of Jesus, that's what we're talking about. Our creeds this morning, our songs have pointed to Jesus as the Lord and Savior. See, it actually, and, and, and I'm not just, I don't think this is a struggle for you if, if this is your first time in church. I think, I think a lot of us struggle with this idea. 
that we would go to people and tell them that their religion is wrong, that the only way of salvation is Jesus, that, that what they're doing, because, because as one commentator says, what we've done is we've confused sincerity, religious devotion, and moral decency as equivalents of faith. So we think if, if a person is serious enough about their faith, if they're devoted enough to their religious system, if they seem like a pretty good person, then, then who would I be to tell them they need to come to Jesus? But you understand the problem. People can be sincerely wrong. People can be fervent in religious devotion to a false God. People can be morally decent, better than me. The problem is, I'm not the standard. See, what this passage confronts us with is the fact that we all must come to Jesus humbly, unworthy, trusting in Jesus. Because, because look at Jesus' reaction to this man. He's, he's not a man who is worthy like the Jews say. He is a humble man, as he admits. But Jesus points out to us he is a man of faith. Jesus, look at verse 9, is amazed at the response of this man. There's an amazement, an astonishment, a, a, a wonder and delight in the response of Jesus, in the centurion's faith. So that Jesus turns and tells the whole crowd, the crowd who has listened to Jesus' magnificent preaching, but he says, this is, what, this is what true faith looks like. He says, verse 9, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The point of the passage is to focus in on what is true saving faith. So much so that the miracle itself is almost a footnote. Just so that you're not left wondering, oh, by the way, verse 10, the kid's okay. He's healed. But that, that isn't the significant point. We're not even told that Jesus ever says or speaks anything. Merely that the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, yes, heals the servant, but the, the, the thing that we're pointed to is the response of faith a humble faith, one that says, I am not worthy, but Jesus, you have authority. I do not deserve your blessing, but Jesus, you pour out blessing. And this passage forces us to see that the ministry of Jesus is a ministry not merely to those that had read the Old Testament, not merely to the Jewish people of the Old Testament. The, the ministry of Jesus is a ministry to all nations. Centurions come to faith. More than that, this centurion is an example of true gospel faith. Not the disciples who have been listening to Jesus preach all along, but this man is the picture of faith. See, Jesus has the power to heal with a word. The man understands that. You don't even need to be face-to-face, -face, Jesus. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I understand your authority. But the problem you and I have it's not merely a problem that, that can be spoken away. Because your problem is not merely a physical sickness, not merely physical death. Our problem is a spiritual sickness, spiritual death. And the, the story of the gospel is not the story of Jesus sitting in the comforts of heaven and saying, oh, no big deal, you'll be fine. It's not merely the story of Jesus from a distance saying, be healed. No, the story of the gospel is, as you follow it through, through the account of Luke or through, through, any of the, through all of the New Testament, is the story of Jesus coming, coming near to us, 
Jesus being born a human. Jesus walking purposefully to the cross to bring salvation. Jesus exchanging himself for me. See, the story of the gospel is the story that Jesus came near as a substitute. A substitute who died in the place of those who foolishly think, well, you know, God will help me because I'm pretty good. That's a lie. That's a, con- a, 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 a damnable lie. If you trust in your own goodness, then your goodness will get what you deserve, which is punishment, because your goodness, if you're better than me, that's not enough. If you are as commendable as the Jews say about this centurion, that's not enough. It doesn't matter how many synagogues you put your name on, it won't be enough. Because what is it to come to faith in Christ? It's to admit, I am unworthy. But Jesus, Jesus is worthy. Jesus came to give his life for us. And as we follow the the unfolding path of the story of Jesus, we find Jesus on the cross. And we have a declaration from another centurion, a man of faith. It's a different guy. They just have the same job description, but posted in different locations. But at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 23, when, when the centurion in charge of the crucifixion witnesses the death of Jesus, when he hears the forgiveness of Jesus extended even to those who had sinned against him, when he understands the, the work of Jesus Christ, what does he say? The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Matthew and Mark expand the declaration of the, the centurion to say that it was, a, it was a, a full-orbed belief in Jesus as the Son of God. See, Jesus arrives with power and authority, authority over our lives. And this should offer to us personally gospel hope. See, for those of us that think there's There's nothing I could do to make myself right with God. And we come humbly and broken, feeling like that that, that I, I don't deserve to be here. That's the starting point of true faith. A faith that stops trusting in yourself. A faith that says, I am not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. This is a faith that lifts up, the the gospel lifts up the broken and the weak who come to Jesus to receive the gift of salvation. But then it it crushes those of us that would come saying, well, look at what I have done to earn favor with God. It forces us to admit there's nothing I could do that would make me better or right with God. I am not worthy. But Jesus, Jesus is worthy. And this then should offer us gospel hope and encouragement because you see the, the, the humility that we have before the gospel. We are sinners, but we should have a boldness to speak like this centurion, but Jesus merely say the word. Because we are weak people, but we serve a strong Savior. And so as we share the gospel with others, we realize there is no one too far from God. Not even centurions assigned to, to an outpost in Galilee. There is nothing that that can keep us, that that, that puts someone too far away from God to hear the gospel. There is no racial or ethnic boundary that the gospel does not cross. There is no one on the other side of a political divide. 
Somebody who you would look at and say, what you believe is stupid. And, and, and remember, the political divide that we've crossed here between Jew and Gentile is no one here has a right to vote, and one guy has a sword. But the gospel goes even to a centurion. No matter what your job, no matter where you were born, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for everyone. That means you and I have the responsibility to take it to everyone, to boldly declare the gospel. And that means today, you need to declare the gospel to people in your life that you think are undeserving. Those people that you know the bad decisions they've made. The consequences they're suffering, they deserve those consequences, you feel like. They are people that need to hear the gospel. That neighbor of yours, the one who, the, the only things he ever says are mean, pestering you with the leaves that blow across your yard, and you think, of course they blow across your yard. They're leaves. That's literally the point of leaves, isn't it? All that he does is complain. He needs the gospel. That coworker who isn't pulling his weight, who's getting credit for stuff he's not doing, who you think, how does he still even have a job? He needs to hear the gospel. That family member that you, you hope is crazy because the other option is just cruel, that one who just says the stupidest things until the next thing they say, and that becomes the new stupidest thing you've ever heard, and then they speak again, and you think, nope, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That one who, who spouts off on, on stupid topics, who shows himself to be, to be a fool, he needs to hear the gospel. See, so we should have bold confidence in the gospel to declare it to others, even to those you think might not initially believe, the, the ones that, that your, your neighbors that are openly hostile to the gospel, who sort of slam the door with vehemence against any mention of faith, those people that you think in your life that, that aren't deserving, the people that if you were to pass on the street, you, you, you double-click the door locks to make sure, you know, I'm just making sure. They need to hear the gospel. That co-worker whose background is nothing like yours, you don't have anything in common, like what, what way would you get to the gospel? The gospel goes to centurions. That co-worker needs to hear the gospel. That person whose life has completely fallen apart, who seems so completely undeserving, she needs to hear the gospel. So, but the gospel is also for those who everybody would look at and say, I don't know, I think he's got it all together. He's got enough money to be building synagogues. He's not even Jewish. He's spreading money around. He seems to have it all together. The gospel is for your neighbors. And so I want you to pray this week. Like start today, even as I conclude this sermon, I want you to be praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with someone unexpected. I don't mean you need to like go seek out a centurion. Like I'm not asking you to fly to Vegas and go talk to the guy standing out in front of the hotel. No, I just mean in your life, find someone, maybe somebody you know, who you think, I don't know that they're the kind of person who's going to believe this. They need to hear the gospel. See, each of us is undeserving of grace. Not a one of us deserves the love and mercy of God except Jesus. 
Jesus who took my place. Jesus who has sent us as a church with the good news. He is at work in the lives of even those we wouldn't expect. Even centurions come to faith. Missionary Nip Ripkin tells the story of Pavel. He's a retired Soviet army officer. Despite being trapped behind the Iron Curtain, Pavel's wife and children hear the gospel and respond. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. But for high-ranking communists, that's a problem. You can't have Christians in your house. That's unacceptable. And so he tries to convince them to, to reject it, to turn away from it. But he, but he has to admit, there's something profound that's taken place in their lives. So finally, Pavel decides to see for himself what's happening. So he attends a house meeting of underground believers so that he can see it for himself. When he hears the gospel preached, the good news that Jesus died in the place of those that were not worthy, he is so overcome with the power that he hears in this message that he thinks to himself, I must resist this. I have to get out of here before I begin to believe it. And so he tries to get up and get out of the room, but the room is so packed with people, there's, there's physically nowhere for him to go. And so he's forced to sit back down, and he, and he says in that moment, tears and prayers begin to flow. And he says, I don't even know where the words came from, for I had never prayed before in my life. But I cried out to God, and he saved me. Even decades later, whenever he tells the story, tears well up in his eyes. Now with KGB informants all around him and given his status in the party, he was quickly brought in for interrogation. Experienced harassment and persecution for years. He lost his position of power. He lost his income. He gave up everything. But Jesus rescued Pavel Mayorov. The gospel is for those we least expect. And how do I know? Because the gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. You've heard the story of God's grace. Will you respond? with faith and repentance, like the centurion, trusting in Jesus, seeing his authority, no longer saying, I am worthy, but pointing to Jesus as the one who is worthy. Will you go by faith and share this good news with everyone, even the most unexpected people in your life? Even centurions come to faith in Jesus 